welcome to the Seek Forgiveness Podcast. Hello, welcome back to the Seek Forgiveness Podcast. This week is Autism Awareness Week. To mark that, in today's episode, we're speaking with Dr. Mandeep Ranger, a clinical psychologist based in West London who works with people with autistic spectrum issues. Dr. Ranger works in a therapeutic manner with people with autism, specialises in assessments for autism, and also works with British Paralympians. Excellent. Right. Okay. So lovely, lovely to speak to you. Um, Thank you. Yeah. Would you like to introduce yourself? Uh, So I'm Mandeep Ranger. I'm a clinical psychologist. Uh, Where are you working presently? So I work in a community health trust in London. Okay. Um, So my main role there is autism diagnosis in adults. Right. Um, I'm also given a sort of due to the COVID situation, I'm managing a learning disability service as well at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, I also do private practice, which uh, varies between, again, mainly with adults, so autism diagnosis and treatment, um, adults with kind of anxiety, depression, self-esteem. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also do some kind of volunteer work for the International Paralympic Committee, for assessing athlete eligibility for their competition. So, yeah kind of athletes with intellectual impairment and determine whether they're eligible to compete at international events. So swim, swimming is the main athlete group that I work with. Oh, wow. That's really interesting. Um, could you, could you explain to, explain to me a little bit about what, um, what autism is and what autism, autistic spectrum disorders are? Sure. Sure. So, so autism basically is considered a lifelong developmental disability so when we're looking at kind of what we mean by developmental disability is something that kind of emerges in childhood and kind of affects across the whole lifespan. So it's a, it's a birth to death condition. Um, so it affects how, you know, people communicate, how they relate to other people, uh, how they make sense of the world around them. Basically it affects individuals in like multiple, multiple ways and, you know, different settings. So it presents itself quite early in life when we see normal typical developmental stages are not achieved uh, or achieved much later than you'd normally expect in a child. Mm-hmm. And then the core areas are difficulties with what we call social interaction. So kind of mixing with other people, mm-hmm. uh, social communication. So that's kind of verbal and nonverbal communication. That's got that social element to it. Uh, something called social imagination. So that's kind of a, typically around understanding how other people are thinking and feeling. So they struggle with foreseeing consequences of actions to other and then the other bit that's probably a lot of people think about when they think autism are kind of special interests or kind of very focused on a particular area. And that comes under what is widely known as rigid repetitive patterns of behavior. Right. Okay. And so um, when you, when you say sort of rigid, rigid and repetitive patterns of behavior, do you have anything in mind or anything in particular? That's it can of- vary. So, yeah. So when, when they talk about kind of, the spectrum of autism that kind of covers that bit. There's, there's a real wide variation in kind of the types of presentation and severity of symptoms people experience. So sometimes if I, I'll give you some sort of examples based on people that I've seen. So when we're talking about repetitive interest and stuff, mm-hmm. sometimes it can be like body movements and verbal routines. So I know I worked with somebody who recently used to just repeat certain phrases of TV shows and used to find them really amusing. 
Um, but then to other times, people's kind of specific interests or collecting items. So a lady I once worked with used to collect these um, Japanese action figures called Ultraman and uh, reminds me of like 1960s Stingray figures, but called a Japanese kind of flavor to it and just knew all of the interests and stuff like that. And other areas can be quite intellectual interests. Some people have been interested in really niche scientific area like space exploration and no details. Others markets betting on horses but, you know the very detailed knowledge of it and it's that kind of very focused interest that's beyond somebody just having a, a strong interest it's, it's a predominant part of their life right okay so does it become sort of um quite analytical like if you take into account that you've just talked about like the betting for example does it does it take on that sort of flavor it becomes quite intense and they sort of start to analyze things yeah it can with them so if you're talking so again with that spectrum if you've got more of the learning disability population it's more of a you're not thinking about the cognitive element of it you're mm -hmm. thinking more that there's a there's a familiarity that somebody's going to like okay if i spin this particular toy there's a sensory element to it um but yeah with some people it's if we go again another case i work with who <laughs> Who, who, whose mother found him with six grand under his bed from going to casinos. It wasn't the money. It was the process and the rules of playing poker um, that really, really, really engaged him. And he would get really cross with his father for not understanding the rules when they're watching kind of television-based poker tournaments. Um, so, yeah, that, sometimes it is that cognitive, that process element that is much more, that intellectual element that is much more appealing to the subset of the population. So it seems like it's quite wide ranging in terms of the way it can affect people. Yeah. Um, that's where that spectrum comes in. I mean, if you think about, you know, your, your classic autism case is like what we call historical, somebody with limited verbal communication. So they might, you know, use basic sign, very kind of limited interest in kind of those around them so very limited social response they don't seek it don't really avoid it they, it's like you're not in a room with them they'll just you're just an object there mm -hmm. might watch the same television show repeatedly or play with the same toy repeatedly to kind of the other end of the spectrum kind of what we historically would have considered high functioning you know might work in it self-taught themselves computer programming they just have a familiar weekly routine um, socially quite awkward would have been bullied and potentially socially excluded at school because of those social difficulties mm. maybe tries to join their colleagues for kind of the after work drinks but just sits on the periphery because they don't have that kind of social skill or that now to kind of join in that type of thing so you know they could be making tons of money in the city and doing really really well kind of uh, on an employment level but that social element is is the bit that's challenging them um, but they look like they're functioning well from the outside. Mm. Would they? Would they? Tip, would people like that typically come in um, and seek sort of psychological support? Yeah, um, definitely. Um, a lot of people are being aware from. I mean, you, you think about kind of how key socialising is to your success in life. Mm -hmm. You know, the friendships, getting on with people at work, getting connected socially, and if you've just struggled with that all your life you know, quite a s strong precursor to a range of mental health issues that you're likely to, to experience because you've been so, so kind of challenged at um, doing those things that other people find um, difficult. You know, mm -hmm. so, 
I'm just trying to think of some things that can help. You know, history of difficulties relating to others. You've been socially excluded at school. Uh, unemployment can then become an issue uh, because you can't get on with work colleagues or you don't get promoted and stuff. You could get stuck in there. All those things that kind of help us get on with other people, this group kind of suffers with, with, with suffers a wrong word, actually. This group struggles with and then mm. suffers the consequences of uh, not being able to do, do those things. We, we live in such a social world, you know, you need something um, done. You have to ask somebody, you know, you've got to you know, meet somewhat different at this current stage in time, but, you know, you need to meet somebody in, a, in the shop. You need to get somebody to fix something for you. There's that social element. If you struggle with that, it's, it's a difficulty. Mm-hmm. It kind of disables you kind of in, in progressing in life. So how, how would you go about supporting somebody um, sort of who comes to you for, for that kind of support or that kind of help? How, how would you go about um, helping them do that? So the first step is always, is typically is a diagnostic process. So is it autism? So has somebody presented? So sometimes people come in really significant social anxiety and, you know, the first question is, is this an autism presentation or is it an experiential issue here that, you know, you know it could be attachment, it could be abuse history. Mm-hmm. Um, number of factors can kind of set somebody up to struggle with socialising. If once you've done, typically it'll start off with an interview and the observation elements are kind of taking a lot of personal history so you're very interested in that early development so normally when i'm assessing somebody i just kind of know what's your current circumstances what are the difficulties you're bringing mm-hmm. typical difficulties tend to be like social stuff you know i you know feel isolated i feel overwhelmed sensory issues tend to come in quite a lot um maybe they're stuck not progressing anxiety is a common comorbid factor with adults depression as well because of that isolation so there's that crossover. So then you're looking at what what what's underlying that. Is it when you do the history, what were they like as a child? Did they have you know, did they have that normal social development or you know if we're looking at from birth, so mm. were they a quiet baby, easy to settle? Were they a good eater? So you know if they're some clues are in there. If they're particularly fussy um, as a child when they're eating, did they cling to a specific object? So. One child, one guy I was working with, you know, his mum gave a really graphic description of he didn't play with toys normally. Um, he had quite a peculiar thing with this clothes horse that he used to kind of twang all the time. So that's giving it that sensory element. Only ate things on a, from a specific brand. Nightmare for the parents, you know, when the company changed the yogurt pot, he wouldn't touch it because the content's the same, but that familiarity is same. Um, you're looking for key things. Mm. How did... The nursery, did, did they join in? Did they understand social schools? Did they go off and play on their own through the school years? How did friendships develop? Mm. Were they bullied? Did they have any friends? Playground interactions. So, you know, is this the kid? Something I've got quite good at, even, even on holiday now, I remember just uh, seeing a kid in, um, was it Queenstown, New Zealand, just kind of wandering around the school playground and just like I was observing from the side I get that's definitely autistic kid and a few things going on um just you know playing within themselves doing quite some sensory behaviors uh, and then when the teacher was talking to them they were talking to them in, a, in quite a specific way very concrete language so you're looking at that kind of development do they start developing decent social relationships? Um, then you're looking at do they understand kind of social communication nuances do they take language literally? that kind of history. Mm. 
so the interview kind of gives you the basis of you know is is this looking like an autism presentation or not then we tend to use specialist assessment tools so nice recommend uh, the key ones tend to be familiar ones ados which is an observation based assessment mm-hmm. you get somebody to come in do some tasks and that creates kind of a, a social setting in which you can see how they do interaction do they engage in kind of normal social communication gesture uh, reciprocal interaction do they talk with you do they talk at you are they creative imaginative mm-hmm. can they read the underlying kind of nuances of, of the interaction going on there do they understand friendships those type of things uh, then there's the ADI which is a developmental one which typically done with a parent caregiver to get that developmental history there's there's other frameworks there's a disco framework they're all kind of specialist assessments that are there to assist you getting that evidence mm. What's the disco frame? Uh, what's the disco uh, assessment or framework? The disco assessment is I've got a copy of it under my nose. I'll read it from there. So it's the diagnostic interview for social communication disorders. So it's if, if I can. Yeah, it's a big book. It, that's how thick it is. Yeah, it's a big manual. It looks like the it looks like the MPI too. Yeah, <laughs> quite long interview process, but yeah, it goes everything from kind of. Um, you know, developmental milestones, when did they, when could you leave them at home independently, the use of language, use of utensils, um, and then you look at more kind of specific social interaction things, did they engage or play with other people other than, you know, other than their siblings, did they have friendships, play dates, Mm. Uh, did they engage in imaginative play so you take your typically developing child they'll see you do an action and they'll copy you they'll do mm. this, this imitation thing they might bring you something to, to show you and try and engage your attention that way you're looking at did this individual show those behaviors right and that gives you a window into kind of is, is this a developmental profile consistent with autism right okay it's a it's a long assessment process. Yeah, definitely. yeah. Does it uh, and so how long does that sort of span? Does it span months or like or a couple like a few weeks or a few months? How what sort of the time frame are you looking at? It varies. I think so. Again, everyone does it differently. Um, I tend to start off with kind of a sort of ninety minutes to hour clinical interview to just to get all the factors and see whether there's anything else at play, but also just to that gives you a window into kind of how the person's engaging with you. Do they understand why they've come for the assessment? Hmm. Um, the specialist assessments, you're talking typically an observation-based one about 90 minutes. Some of the diagnostic interviews like the DISCO or the ADI, they can take, depending on how much detail you get, up to three to four hours sometimes hmm. and how complex they are. So as you're familiar kind of with forensic type stuff, so there's a forensic element to that assessment hmm. if you're if that's relevant you'll administer that part of the assessment um sometimes you can't get that early history so you work around it so i'll try and get somebody who knows them well might not be a parent an older sibling or long-standing friend if there's any school records um i remember once getting a, a pack about 20 centimeters deep from from a parent um, of which three pieces of paper were fundamental to getting the diagnosis. Um, but I had to go through all of it because I didn't know what was in it. She just collected everything. He was in his mid twenties at that time. And she goes, this is all I've got. Have a look at this. And it was really helpful to go through that. 
So it seems like it's a big fact finding mission. Like you, you, you're absolutely like um, you have to tune in on certain facts and things that that are sort of uh, key indicators of maybe uh, a spectrum disorder in that way. Yeah, it's one of the challenges. You sometimes you get a real strong hunch that this is autism. Mm-hmm. You can't get that early life history. It's very difficult to give the diagnosis because you can't say it's it's been present since early development. Mm. Sometimes you get. Um, I know gentlemen I work with again fairly recently I was convinced it was autism um and I had to work it out as a kind of a working hypothesis but because he'd entered the mental health system and followed kind of episode of psychosis um dad hadn't raised him he was living abroad and he'd only come to live with his dad at 16 and the psychosis was about 18 19 Uh, and they were convinced because he was very academic there wasn't any problems before that um but actually, I think that masked quite a lot of the difficulties. He was, you know, socially very, very, very challenged and kind of engaging with other people and very f- focused on where he was going. And that sort of seemed to trigger the psychosis that things didn't go that well. Got overwhelmed in kind of the examination periods and yeah, uh, very bright individual. But yes, again, if you don't have those social skills and you're not in a context that's just designed for work, you, mm. you struggle no matter how bright you are so hmm. okay how did you how, what was your interest in working with um like working in this part of the psychology field like what what drew you to it or what what or what were you drawn to in it yeah some of it is by chance so i used to work for a learning disability charity for for years it was a mm-hmm. uh, great job um used to get paid to go play football with a bunch of kids over the summer and do sort of outdoor activities which is right up my street so I always had a soft spot for the autism clients um within that because you know just that, that you know they're quite quirky and they've got some interesting behaviors and they just see the world so differently they don't have they're not bothered by the social nuances that sort of trouble the rest of what they call the neurotypical population mm-hmm. um you know, some kids who were just fascinated by the workings of a tap. And um, I remember one kid I worked with, it was, you know, it's not a problem if you're a child, but as an adult, it's going to be an issue. But, you know, fascination with the workings of like the waterworks. But when you go to a toilet as a seven, eight year old and you're sitting there looking at how the sink works, it's not an issue. But once you get to an adulthood and you start hanging around toilets, um, the connotations of what and the difficulties that can put somebody in, mm. um, it's quite profound in that in that sense but yeah just you know somebody who could talk to you ages about kind of pokemon and tell you the, the nuances or name every species um just a friend of ours at the moment whose son um is is in the process of getting assessed you know his knowledge of cars and their top speeds really lovely kid doesn't fit in with all the other kids at school but just so quirky and actually when you engage with somebody at that level is, is quite interesting and just, mm. just has a very different perspective on the world and that, that pure practical thing of, you know, what's important. Justice is very kind of black and white mm. and right. And you sometimes wish it was that simple, but they, they tend to see things that way. So that's kind of how it's developed. And then, yeah, I worked with that group various kind of you know younger clients older clients my paralympic work um sometimes working with the autistic athletes it's just it's, it's absolutely fantastic fun because 
you know, if you say four laps, they will do four laps. Right. Okay. Uh, the letter of the law, and it might be you might have to stop them because they're like, you know, you're going to drown on that last lap. You need to um, kind of pull yourself out. But they're just insistent on doing it because they've heard it as a concrete in instruction. They're going to follow it through to the letter of the ball. So it's quite fun sort of helping the coaches adapt training to that group. Mm -hmm. um, I remember once working with one of the other kind of classifiers. Do, we got on a lift afterwards with the Korean athletes and then you get the mix of the culture and the autism and they're very kind of formal bowing at you. And then they gave the other guy a hug in the lift because they're so grateful how much time he spent doing the assessment with him. And you just don't get that with any other group. They won't do that. They know it's inappropriate, mm. but um, this, these guys, it wasn't on purpose. It was, a couple of, it was, it was just funny seeing um, sort of this massively built guy getting hugged around the knees by a kind of these young Korean athletes who are very grateful for their assessment. That sounds great. <laughs> um, what would you, what would you advise for like people who are sort of neurotypical and um, if they're engaging with people who are um, who are not neurotypical, who are sort of atypical? Um, what what sort of advice would you give people who are engaging with um, with people with autism? main thing I'd always say is communication because that's the bit they really struggle with is that kind of social interaction, social communication. Mm -hmm. I think kind of widely coming down was this kind of environmental factors as well because often there's sensory factors like the noise that might uh, not bother your neurotypicals might be quite um, averse to them. The basics are sometimes the kind of outlining in advance of warning so you know if they can't read body language or like you might be bringing something to a close or moving the topic on you might want to kind of be quite concrete and explain that because they won't pick up on you know whether you're bored or um need to move on to something else so alert them to changes keep your information uh, quite precise and short and simple so not too complex and try not to use metaphors or um things that can be interpreted in different ways. It's quite clear communication. So avoid uh, abstract language. Mm -hmm. um, other things, I think check your comprehension, you know, check whether they followed, take your time to kind of explain things, more time for them to kind of process information. One of the big things I find in the workplace is that sometimes you need to give somebody with an autism condition kind of a separate space to go to. Uh, just to go and process what's going on. So they've been quite aroused by a lot of sensory stuff, uh, a lot of social stuff. And that's for most people, that's not fatiguing to go through for them. They were working uh, as one client explained it. He goes, I have to almost, I've learned this book by heart about what social interaction is and how to do it. But when somebody says something to me, I have to kind of process it in my mind, apply those rules and get it out quick enough that I can respond. Mm -hmm. And that's exhausting for, for somebody and sometimes you just need to give them a break so they just got a bit of headspace to, to process it. And yeah, you know, talk to them about kind of what communication works for them, what they what their needs are. It's it's sometimes it, good psychology is the same for everyone. It's just about meeting where people's strengths are and putting in um, support structures around their difficulties. And if you can do that, you you generally form a useful and helpful relationship. And that's great. It's, it sounds like people can really thrive in it. Like if, if their if their needs are taken into consideration, then people can really, really thrive. Yeah. I mean, 
just, just thinking about a case I mentioned about, about the guy who's kind of having to pull out the book out of his head. Mm. Um, so one of the things we set up for him was he was so good at his job, um, absolutely flying at it. But because of that, they pushed him into a management situation um, and dealing with one person at the time was fine. When he was dealing with multiple kind of staff coming in, um, mm. that became undoable for you know we just really couldn't manage that yeah. so then we just kind of talked about his support structures and it was about them kind of structuring the day where he only had to deal with one member of staff at a time um and then that kind of group dynamic stuff it had to go over to somebody else to manage because he could do it but he would take three or four hours after a session to kind of process it all and make sense of it and the guilt he would feel he'd realize i've got something wrong i'd missed this over processing it and actually it was better to kind of adapt his working environment and mm. keep him working what he was good at and then support him around that kind of the social element of the job and the managerial element of dealing with people because he could be quite blunt as well um, mm. in dealing with stuff and that that didn't always go down well with his colleagues. Right. And yeah. again, once they knew what the situation was, it was quite transparent in that organisation. Mm. Um, it was quite positive for him. So. In terms of transparency, is that something that you would sort of recommend like for uh, companies when they're sort of trying to trying to foster put like a, that sort of positive environment for people? Definitely. There's some companies um, who, there's one accounting firm, I can't remember what the, the name of the company was. I apparently had a specific div division for supporting people with autism because I had a number of workers who'd met the criteria on that. And, wow. Um, there's some companies are actively trying to recruit people because they're quite, you know, the analytical skills are very good. Mm. Um, things that other people find quite repetitive and boring can be quite useful to this group because that, that sense of familiarity works quite well. Mm. But yeah, transparency, definitely. I mean, sometimes when I've written up something for a client, um, we'll talk about okay, what do we share with your company now? So you've, you know, if we've got a confirmed diagnosis, we need to let them know. Because mm. um, the company is then kind of, is expected to make some reasonable adaptations. Uh, they don't necessarily need to know the ins and outs of somebody's personal history. Sometimes we've got a document of, like some of these assessments, I've got when did the person start toilet training and stuff, but your company doesn't need to know any of that. That's mm. not relevant to your job. But in terms of, the social difficulties that you have, they, they need to know that when they put you in situations with either clients or colleagues that, that that's going to stress you out or yeah. you're just not sure how to handle it. And then mentoring can be quite helpful that they've got somebody who can kind of give them a helping hand around that situation. Um, you, you were asking about kind of treatment stuff earlier when we got into quite diagnostic terminology there, but mm. social skills training, uh, specifically so you know what does it mean asking somebody for coffee at two o'clock versus asking somebody to go for coffee at 10 o'clock at night you know mm. most people understand there's there's something else in that interaction um but for some people with autism they might not pick up on those subtleties so it's kind of helping them see you know in literal sense it's the same thing we're going for coffee mm. but actually the time of day you do it has different connotations to it yeah, so yeah yeah Wow. Okay. So yeah. So I suppose it's about trying to um, join those dots in contextual understanding. Yeah. Um, often that's the kind of key key area. But often what we do find is workplace is not the issue because mm. that's quite. Sometimes it can be quite predictable. They've learned um, their strengths. There's one lady who you know for years struggled with 
jobs working in a secondhand costume shop, um, kind of retail environments, and then taught myself computer programming in the background and got into that line of work and was much more settled there. Mm. Um, but the difficulties for her was like, you know, I want to go out with my colleagues, but I don't know what to do. And they don't do much face-to-face -face interaction during the day. It's um, They have like an online communication tool. Mm. Absolutely fantastic for her. But when you're in sort of that social post-work drink setting, she just really couldn't join in um, and wanted to do it. So it's kind of helping her with those type of steps. Um, you know, relationship difficulty is a massive part. Um, mm. Often I get a call from, from the spouse. It's like, you know, my husband is they'll be telling me they're definitely autistic. And I'm like, okay, well, we can't jump to that conclusion yet. But, you know, there's a sense of um, when the gentleman's retired is a typical stressor um, because he's at home and the structure's gone and they're just struggling with that. And sometimes it's been the other way around, again, with women changing circumstances at work and it's, it's caused massive kind of marital relationship issues because mm. the stress has come out there and the the relationship dynamics has changed quite considerably and it's not so clear-cut anymore. Seek forgiveness for the launch Mental Health Ki Hundahe, a transformative translation guide that looks to explore and explain common mental health issues in a way that Sikh and Punjabi-speaking communities can understand. If you'd like to find out more, please visit sikhforgiveness.com. If you're in the UK, you can purchase directly from the website. If you're looking to purchase internationally, please check out Amazon. Are there any... Um any observations that you've made with regards to sort of um, men and women who have autism and, and how does that play out? A huge topical area um, over recent years. So the history to it is women are believed to be underdiagnosed. Uh, we've been looking at kind of male populations and the research and the, the assessment tools have been kind of normed on men. Um, and this kind of difference of kind of how women present themselves. So the core issues are there, but the presentation are difficult, uh, are, are different. Um, mm. So women are tend this common, you'll hear this term called masking where they, they hide the difficulties much better. What I've definitely seen from kind of my own practice is women's difficulties tend to emerge a little bit later, more around sort of the adolescent years. Um, not always the case, but it's where I tend to see it more is because they're, they're better at the social skills and fitting in quite early on. And, and during the primary school years, it's not that complicated. Um, and the interests, for example, with the common one you hear about interest in horses and kind of makeup and back, that's, you know, society wise, that's often deemed as quite a normal female interest. Mm -hmm. um, whereas, you know, Trains can be an issue with boys. Again, if you're looking at kind of those stereotypical type things, but the level of interest, but because it masks in much better and then women tend to be better at the nonverbal communication. Mm -hmm. um, so certainly when you're assessing them, you'll, you'll see actually, oh, they've done that bit of the assessment quite well. Um, I'm not seeing anything, but when you push kind of the, the details around it, they go, actually, I've learned how to communicate that. Or, I've been watching this. I've studied this person. Right. Um, and, misdiagnosed for personality disorder or something like bipolar disorder because how they come across emotionally might be quite cut off or something like that and it's not mm -hmm. that because their difficulties reading other emotions in other people they're not aware of kind of the emotional needs in others mm -hmm. but it, it just gets labeled that way and I've, I've definitely had that with a few cases when i've looked at and it's quite 
quite sad when you see some there's one lady in her 60s um i think 14 inpatient admissions i'd counted when i'd gone through her notes um eye contact was an issue but that was missed because she had some kind of eye degenerative disease going on in the last year went through the history compromising situations that she'd put herself in um you know abusive relationships and stuff because just didn't know what was right or wrong at that stage um couldn't read you know what when was somebody taking advantage of her and when somebody wasn't Mm. um, and got through that history and it was a really clear case you know clear case of autism and they just misdiagnosed it and ended up in the mental health system and you think you know poor lady with the inappropriate treatments and four years after diagnosis i'm aware she's never been readmitted to to hospital again so somebody who'd had so many hospital admissions that was a success story yeah Um, absolutely of yeah the life lost because of that um so that yeah definitely one area of progression is this presentation in women is quite quite different mm. um, typically it is that non-verbal communication is much better and um that hides it but the core issues i remember I, I took time i had three women i looked at one in their 20s 30s and 40s um quite early on and i just wanted to have a look at how different these presentations were but that those core areas with different one the lady in her 20s that kind of restricted interest was from somebody of a South Asian background mm-hmm. in K-pop was quite interesting how she'd got into that and um, a range of CDs that she was listening to. The lady in her uh, 30s, Horses and Makeup, which was more of a kind of typical female case as it gets presented. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the lady in her 40s was um, buses and um, specific brands of clothing. Right, okay. Um, and again, all... Do these do these interests change over time? Like like you've said, okay, generationally there seems to be some sort of difference um, with regards to uh, what people latch on to. Um, but does that change over time, or do they stay quite rigid and fixed, like through throughout the lifespan? It doesn't have to stay. What you're looking is for that limited range or that repetitive range, and it can can change. It can right. go from pieces of one thing to the other. Mm-hmm. But some, sometimes they do endure. So you'll get sort of you know guys in their kind of 40s still playing with lego and it's not the playing with the lego it's making the model mm-hmm. and then when their kids want to play with it and they're like no no you don't play with it that way and that rigid application of mm-hmm. you know, when sometimes you talk about it, it's not necessarily the play element of it it's the following the instructions the letter of the law that was the key key bit in their early development right okay so it's made it's put on a shelf and looked at mm-hmm. Um, and that might persist for some time, but it might transfer to, to other, you know, somebody might have collected something as a, as a child and the collections as an adult are quite different. Right. Okay. Yeah. So it's more around rules and rule making and rule breaking and, or uh, lack of ability to, to break rules. It's, there, there's, it's like, the, there's a comfort in limited range, what they term rigid and repetitive interest, but it's, it's that limited range and that rigidity around kind of how it's applied and, yeah. And so perhaps you know it might be one thing or a few things but it's done in a very specific way they don't deviate from how they mm-hmm. how they do that task so like the cinema going might be again again guy i work with very recently it's not necessary about you know enjoying the movie it's that process i have a coffee before i go i always review it afterwards and i look mm-hmm. at these pages but i can't deviate from doing it any i can't just go and see the movie 
and enjoy it in in a different way. I have to do it these ways. That's really interesting because it kind of um, maybe this is. I mean, this is definitely my my um, sort of lack of understanding on it. But I suppose there's 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 a lot of crossover with like obsessive compulsions. So um, maybe that's the wrong way of framing it. I don't know, but it just sounds like there's 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 a a commonality there about sort of like that that's sort of the things that you would see in sort of uh, the repetitive behaviors of of obsessive compulsions yeah and there's the sometimes areas the crossover that people get diagnosed with ocd type mm-hmm. presentations when it is more of an autism i think the, when we're looking at kind of the qualitative difference it is you know the obsessive compulsion is is driven by an anxiety right you know, i need to do this otherwise it keeps the anxiety in check whereas the autistic person is i like it that suits me you might get anxiety of not doing it, but there's something about it's doing it for the sake of it rather than right, kind of okay. containing a negative emotion. Yeah, yeah. It's more about this. This this is a familiar process. I like doing it. I do it a particular way. Um, you know, somebody used to remember the description of doing their washing up. I line up the plates in this particular way. I take two steps, twist on my heel, and turn that way. And it always does it that way. Um, whereas. Um, a friend of mine who actually has a OCD diagnosis um, is ma- has been managing really, really well, wouldn't leave the room unless the clock was on a even number. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the anxiety and the bad thinking around, okay, if I go out on a, a number three was there, it was. Um, and then, you know, once you reduce the anxiety, he's able to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas the autistic person, why would you do that? There's right. nothing. Okay. Yeah. So that's really that's really interesting in terms of like the 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 behaviour on the surface may appear similar, but the payoffs are very different. Yeah. 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 Okay. Brilliant. Um, that's, I mean, that's always the challenge with with an adult assessment is. Yeah. Um, it's I always find I haven't worked with children for a while, but it was easier because you see the behaviours emerge as they're doing it. You know, mm. this is. It developmentally they should be doing this but they're doing this with adults is how much of this is learned how much of it's due to something else and it's, it's pulling apart those factors what is what is underpinning this presentation right okay what's the um what's the most interesting part of it for you sometimes it i think it this is when you get that connection yeah sometimes it's, it's the amusing thing it's like you get the and it varies from quite sometimes what we call that the LD clients who are like non-verbal and you know, you just, they're sitting in the room with you completely ambivalent looking out the window mm-hmm. um, and they're in their own world. And there's something quite nice about that, that they're just kind of, and that can also be quite hor- you know, horrifying for the family. I've got somebody so different mm. that way. So with that element of the population, it is that they're just so, so detached from the rest of what the rest of us are kind of bothered by. And that's one of the kind of enjoyable bits because somebody might just shriek with laughter because they've seen something familiar to them walk past and they're just, they're very content that way. Mm. Um, With the kind of more kind of functioning, able individuals, sometimes it's it's the connection about, I think my interests are quite wide and it's sometimes being able to talk about those random things that you don't really get to talk about or learn about these things like those those Japanese action figures. And Mm. I remember going to Japan about seven or eight months after um, talking to this client. And I remember Googling the pictures and I get, to, you know, some of the things I must be looking up at work when I'm there is, 
you know, somebody's talked about this interest and I'm like, I'm Googling it on the computer and I'm, I'm hoping there's nothing inappropriate there. Yeah. Um, and I was like, you know, I'll check my IT. The client said, this. I need to kind of look in a bit more detail about this. Um, and then you see it and you just kind of connect with it. And there was one client who was talking about a restaurant in London, always eats the same food there. And I'd heard about it from a friend and I was like, that, that human connection, you still get it. Even this, even with this group that meant to be quite socially distinct and, mm-hmm. and away from that. So it's the same thing you get with any kind of positive client interaction, that kind of, that bit where you just get to connect with somebody, you should have that shared understanding or shared perspective. But with, with this group that just hardly gets it with anyone else, it just feels much more, there's something quite special about doing it with this group. And it's also, they, you know, they catch you out with stuff. Um, you know, they, sometimes you get asked inappropriate questions back. Um, you know, you've gone through an assessment, you've explained stuff and you give them a chance. Do you, do you have any questions? And I'll ask you quite, um, you know, what did you have for dinner last night? It's got nothing to do with the question about whatever, but it's been bothering this client. You have to make a call. Okay, I can disclose that, but I won't disclose other things about me if they start yeah. things like that. And that, that can be quite good fun. So, yeah, always being that little bit of anxiety that brings out in you, which is it's a good piece of client where whenever you meet somebody new, you're a little bit anxious yourself about mm. you know, how can I help this person? What are they going to challenge me with? Ah, interesting. Um, how do you how do you think? Um, like, I mean, we're obviously about trying to educate South Asian communities as well. So, and and. What, what do you think is important in terms of educating um, South Asian communities about autism and, and how it can affect people? What do you think are the most important factors? I, I, you know, I thought about this. This is something I really did think about before this. You know, what is it like? Educating them, again, is giving them that information that it's not something kind of and I, and I give this to all groups that I deal with, you know, it's not a mental health issue. They may have mental health issues as a consequence of it. It's not um, anybody's fault. You know, this person is just, it's just different. They just have developed differently and getting them to kind of recognize the strengths around that. Um, sometimes, and again, I think it's not specific to the South Asian community, but you, it's more in, more prominent there is that loss of grief uh, of that child not being as expected and kind of helping them understand. And definitely when I've worked with, with South Asian communities around that is, you know, sometimes you, you get it. Sometimes the parents do get it. You get the sense of, okay, this is, this is what it is. And you know, they're quite distraught about it, but you help them see that, that there is some strengths in this individual. And that's what we kind of need to deal with. And they're worried, certainly with the younger ones of how they're going to grow up or what the future concerns are, kind of vulnerability, who's going to care for them when, 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 when we're not around. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's changing, you know, it's not changing, just changing that idea that something's not wrong with them. They're just different. Um, that social culture that South Asians are quite part of can be quite a challenge. And, um, you know, certainly from personal experience, kind of family members of mine who have similar type issues, kind of crossover into the autism spectrum it's getting that message you know this big family gathering isn't the right environment Mm. um because they really struggle with it Mm. and 
you might want to and then it's about the family kind of recognizing that and you know they can still have social interaction but it's supporting it in a way that it's more appropriate and not overwhelming not distressing to that individual otherwise if you just again if you've had that experience of like this is distressing for somebody they're just going to avoid it in the future if you've if they know the nuances are kind of okay i can handle this bit of it or i can do this this amount short period of it i can join in that part but then that's enough for me um but yeah it's like with all communities just explaining you know as soon as you give it a label and diagnosis such a, and certainly for psychologists we don't like diagnosis and i work in a service where diagnosis is this thing that you give and it's like yeah. it's, that's kind of crucial to kind of explaining what's going on here but actually let's let's take it away from that what is this person good at what does this person struggle with mm. um and how can we support structures to kind of help them understand that and actually it's not a bad diagnosis this is kind of just an it's an understanding of what's going on here and it's developed differently mm. I suppose, uh, especially with a diagnosis um or, or gaining a diagnosis it can open open up different opportunities as well in terms of understanding and um i mean you were going thinking about what you were talking about earlier on with regards to uh, work environments and sort of uh, companies having to put things in place in order to aid and assist people, um, so it's just about offering additional support for people who can then who can then continue to thrive, you know. And I think, yeah, especially for our community as well, or our communities, it's about trying to understand how we can best modulate our culture um, in order to help 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 these people come through. So like you, you're talking about the family. So um, like the family gatherings, bits and pieces, and maybe sort of the going back to the the sort of sensory stimulation and overstimulation. So maybe being able to say, look, there's there's rooms here where you can go and chill out afterwards, or you don't have to be here all night. You just come in, say hello, have something to eat, and go, and, and that type of thing. So and, and just offering offering other alternatives and and understanding, I think, is is really important. And I think sometimes it's having those difficult conversations, you know, people are talking about, you know, how big an issue a wedding is, getting in a relationship. Um, and actually, mm. some people with autism want that. Um, some people with autism are quite ambivalent about those type of things. And there's, you know, there's um, gender identity is a big factor in this population as well. That's mm. kind of a new new area that people are kind of focusing on and just kind of explaining to families and stuff like, you know, you need to have an open conversation about what this individual wants because, you know, a certain element, you know, they're going to struggle with relation relationships um, mm -hmm. or elements of relationships. And, you know, if they are getting into a relationship, you need to kind of be quite transparent about kind of what the challenges and stuff are um, and you, the future consequences. And that, that is also kind of, it's one of those things I hate having a discussion with with families about, but it needs to happen is, okay, what happens in the future? Uh, what are the plans if you're not around and what, what are you expecting to happen? And then sometimes you have to challenge that about whether that's a realistic thing. Mm. Um, and your view of that might be a particular way. It's almost like we're complaining about, you know, our child is particularly rigid in a particular way because of their autism, but you're also quite rigid in a particular way of cultural expectations and okay we know we, we but we need to marry that up together and to see where this individual is going to be well and happy mm. and how we can support that and yeah sometimes that that kind of label helps the process it's you know people would say specific to community you know individual families within the community are so different um 
you know, I get asked obviously you know, what's it like in in the South Asian community and I'm like, oh, I can tell you what it's like in the one that I've grown up in and I can mm-hmm. tell you what the ones that some of my friends are growing up and they're quite different, you know. Yeah, yeah. Some of the um, my parents have been very open about, I know some of my friends that just haven't had that experience and um, even relatives of mine haven't had that experience. So I'm just going to be grateful for what i've experienced in that sense mm-hmm. i think there's much about um i think we're learning a lot around sort of the language of pluralism and trying to hold that tension that not all communities are specifically the same that they are different and people's experiences within the communities are different as well so yeah i always try and hold that in mind when i'm talking about south asian communities it's it's you we have to hold in mind that there is a vast array of what's going on and within that there's interplay between all of between all of our communities so um you can be exposed to different elements of that all the way through and, and that's just something to hold on to i think i'm just mindful of time so i just want to say thank you thank you very much for taking the time out and speaking to us about autism no educate educating us a little bit it's been wonderful thank you for having me and uh, uh maybe we'll, we'll have you back on at some point and we'll have a, a part two excellent would love to brilliant okay thank you very much if you've enjoyed this podcast and would like to donate to sick forgiveness you can donate at ko-fi.com forward slash sick forgiveness three pounds please do share the link and donate if you can all funds raised go back towards sick forgiveness projects